If you've got a Bible with you, get to the Gospel of Luke. We've been tracking along in the Gospel of Luke for several months now. We're in chapter 16, looking at verses 14 through 18 this morning. Uh, if you need a good Bible, if you're with us, you don't have a good Bible, get one at Guest Connections, take that home with you. Uh, if, you have a good, if you need a good study Bible, I've got one to give away as well. Uh, study Bible has additional references and notes and help us to understand the Word of God because that's the goal, not just read it, but actually understand it and apply it. So if you, if you need a good study Bible, see me afterwards and I'll hook you up with one. When we consider the words of Jesus here as we teach through Luke, I, th- I think there are two different responses that we can have as we read or hear His words. We can either agree with them or we can disregard them. We can say, yes, Jesus, I trust your word. I may not fully understand it right now, but, but I trust you, the person, and your living word. Or we can say, I don't trust your word. I don't believe there's a third option. I don't believe we see a third option playing out here in the, in the gospel account in Luke. Even those who were casual or indifferent to the words of Jesus, like they were in the crowds, they heard the teaching, they, they were present with Jesus and his teaching, even those who were indifferent to that, they were still disregarding Jesus. There is no third option. If you're a parent, you ask your child to do something and, and they say, sure, and they walk away and nothing changes. They've disregarded your word. Or if they said, or if they just kind of walk away in silence, they've disregarded what you've asked them to do. If you're a teach, teacher, a coach, a, a manager, someone in authority, and you've asked someone on your team, hey, would you do this? Would you do that? Or would you change this? And they say, uh, sure. And then nothing changes. There's no third option. Even indifference is disregarding. So we either agree with the words of Jesus or we disagree with them. In the, in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen that play out. We see it play out today in the passage that we're looking at. And how we respond to the words of Jesus reveals our hearts. In this passage, we'll see the Pharisees scoff at the words of Jesus and disregard him. But what that's actually doing is is revealing a hardness of their heart, a pride or stubbornness to the good and loving authority of Jesus Christ. And we're all prone to that kind of response because we were born rebels, born in this posture of, I think I know more. I like my ways. I like my wisdom better than yours. But then, through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, at conversion, the believer in Christ has made a new creation where once there was a heart of stone and pride, now there's a heart of tenderness and a growing humility. Our identities are made new. Colossians 3 speaks of this. Verses 1 through 4 says this, So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In short, here's another way to say that. As believers in Christ, we live the rest of our lives by a new set of values. Values that seek the things above, not on earthly things that seek to bring glory to the one who has saved us. And what we realize, typically early in our faith, is that the kingdom or heavenly values are in stark contrast to the values of this world. Kingdom values seek the Lord's glory. Earthly values seek the glory of self and sin. 
Paul is giving that encouragement in Colossians 3 because the Spirit knows it will be something every believer will, will need to hear continually, that we're still in this world but not of this world. And, and so we're on, on this side of heaven. These two kingdoms are present in eternity. All things will be made new. On this side of heaven, though, on earth, we're not there yet. So how do we live in a fallen world with its values set on earthly things And at the same time, how do we live in that context while our own hearts and minds are set on things above? Well, here's one key step. By the grace of God, the power of the Spirit, we are to pursue a tender, humble heart that receives and agrees with the words of Jesus that doesn't disregard them but welcomes them. In this passage here in Luke 16, Jesus is calling out the Pharisees who are doing the exact opposite of that, not welcoming, but resisting. They're scoffing at the teaching of Jesus because their hearts are hard toward him. The Pharisees and Jesus' rebuking of them is kind of the the focus of this little section. And in his rebukes of them, we see this contrast between worldly values that the Pharisees are living by and kingdom values that the followers of Jesus are to live by because We've been raised with Him. We are resurrection people who set our minds and our hearts on things above. So may we hear and welcome the words of Jesus this morning. Verse 14 in the CSB translation, the Pharisees were lovers of money. The Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and scoffing at Him. So last week we looked at the first 13 verses of Luke 16 and that passage Jesus is teaching on money and possessions and giving a call to generosity to avoid seeing earthly treasure as ultimate. He was saying, use money that won't last forever now to prepare for eternity that will last forever. Next week in the verses 19 through 31, we'll see him come back again to the subject of money because that's a theme throughout this whole chapter. And for the Pharisees, they assumed the wealthier you are, the more righteous or pious that you are. If you're wealthy, then God's favor must be upon you. If you're poor, then it must be God's judgment upon you and a result of sin. That false teaching has zero biblical basis to it. Luke rightly describes here that they are lovers of money. Not lovers of God, but lovers of money which Jesus had just said in verse 13 that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. You're going to have to either hate the one or love the other. And so he's calling out the Pharisees saying, you say you love God, but actually you, you love money and you love less or hate the Lord. And this gets revealed in their response to his words. As they're listening, they are scoffing at him meaning they're turning up their nose. It's contempt, a disregard, we don't care kind of attitude, revealing not a tender, humble heart, but a hard heart. And then in the handful of verses left, Jesus is calling out kingdom values that the Pharisees are scoffing at. They're disregarding those and instead living by worldly values, verse 15, and and he told them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others. But God knows your hearts, for what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. 
the Pharisees are living by worldly values of only the outward matters, only what people see. It's all about appearances, and they are disregarding the kingdom value that what matters most to the believer in Christ is bringing praise to the Lord, to do what is right in His sight, that what the Lord is after first and foremost is our hearts to rule and reign here inwardly. We talk about this often, but I want us to catch it, that the gospel is always transforming us inside out. It's never working outside in. It's always transforming hearts and minds, which leads to transformed actions and attitudes. See, the Pharisees were great at convincing others that they were holy through their outward actions and morality. They gave to be noticed. They prayed to be noticed. They served to be noticed. And Jesus rebukes them for seeking to justify themselves in the sight of others. To justify means to, uh, to, to pursue a right standing. So they're seeking to gain a right standing with God, not through faith, but by trying to look better, more pious, more religious than the people around them. That, the, that God would look down and say, well, you're better than that person, so now you have a right standing. But that's a works-based mentality. It's wrong. It's false. And Jesus says to them, God knows your heart. You can do all these outward actions, but the Lord still sees the heart. And the heart is what matters. First Samuel 16, 7 tells us the Lord looks at the heart. Psalm 139 tells us that He knows our, added, knows our, our words before we even speak them. He, he knows what's on our minds. He knows us. We, he can search us and know us, and we cannot escape His presence. So right standing with the Lord can't be earned outwardly when what needs healing and transforming is inwardly, our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that our natural hearts are born deceitful. So what we need is a righteousness outside of ourselves. We can't be our own savior. We can't produce the, the issue of sin in our lives and cause the, the wages of sin as death. We we can't find ourselves in need of healing and then be our own healer. We need rescuing. We need a Savior. And Jesus himself offers himself as that Savior, as our righteousness. Jesus says to them, for what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. That is a sobering truth from, from the Lord. The world's values and the values of the kingdom of God are radically different, opposed to one another because their goal isn't different places. The kingdom of this world has its goal in the, in the praise of self and the praise of sin. But the Lord's kingdom, His kingdom values find themselves ultimately seeking to glorify Him. It's easy. It is easy when we're honest to slip into this disconnect between outward and inward. The outward of our lives and the inward health of our hearts. So I pray that we would seek to live in the light of His grace and truth alongside other believers. We might reject that Pharisee temptation to justify ourselves through the sight of others, which is hypocrisy. So may we reject that and pursue faithfulness in the light of His grace and truth alongside others. Verses 16 and 17, the law and the prophets were until John since then the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and everyone is urgently invited to enter in. It is, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. 
The Pharisees were not known to be urgently inviting people into the kingdom of God. In fact, they were known as those who were trying to make it hard on others to enter the kingdom. Saying to people, if you want to be accepted by God, then you must obey these rules first and foremost. You must go through these, these actions, change these outward things, and then and only then you might possibly be accepted by God. They were calling people to obey the law of Moses and try to earn justification through the law. But such teaching is false. Galatians 2.16 tells us what is true. The Apostle Paul writes this, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. The Pharisees were still preaching that people could earn a right standing with God by trying to obey all the law. But if so, if that's possible, then Jesus died for nothing. He came because we fell short of His glory. We needed rescuing. He came because we could not heal or save or remedy the issue of sin in us. We needed saving. We needed a healer. We needed Him. When Jesus says John there, He's referring to John the Baptist. And in some sense, John had, had one foot in the Old Testament, one foot in the New Testament. John was the end of the Old Testament prophets who were continually pointing to the promise that one day a Messiah would come. The Lord would send a Messiah to rescue and save, to give them new hearts, to change them, heal them from the inside out. One way to see the relationship between the Old Testament and New Testament, these two parts of your Bible, is that the Old Testament is promise made and the New Testament is promise kept. Where the Old Testament is promise, the New Testament is fulfillment. Our God is faithful through all of that. We serve a promise-keeping God. And so in the sending of Jesus in the flesh, John the Baptist served as that last prophet to say, here's the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the promised one has come. But the Pharisees scoffed at him. They disregarded him. It's tragic. The promised one through centuries has finally arrived in the flesh and they scoff at him. The one who'd been promised since Genesis had come to seek and save the lost, and yet they were so proud and hard-hearted that they missed that they themselves were lost and they themselves were in need of saving. Jesus says here in verse 17 that the law remains, though. Not even one stroke of its words changes. So how is Jesus good news for us today as it relates to the law? Listen to Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so they might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was born under the law, Paul writes, meaning Jesus looked at the law, for instance, the Ten Commandments, and the perfection that it demands, that if righteousness is going to be earned externally, then you have to be flawless then you have to be perfect. And he looked at the perfection that it demands and willingly fulfilled its demands. He did it flawlessly, without sin and stain. Even in temptation, he did not sin. 
Whatever the Father asked of him, he did. Whereas apart from the Lord's grace and the power at work in us, we look at the law, such as the Ten Commandments, and we don't come out clean. None of us score an A+. And an A-plus is what's demanded if righteousness can actually be earned through the law. No, we come out stained. We come out in need of cleansing. I've given the story before, but when you preach for many years, this is what happens. So if you remember the story before, praise God that you've been listening. Thanks. Thanks for your grace. I'm glad you're listening. But when I was in high school, I was not a great lifter of weights. I know that's surprising. I know that is but I was never going to enter a bench press contest. But the one thing I could do decent was lift weights through squatting. And so one day, early in the morning, weights class, I load up the bar. I have no idea how much is on there. Probably the older I get, I turn 45 this summer. By the time I'm 55, the bar will be bending probably. The entire high school will be around me. 65, the bar will have broken. I don't know. It probably really wasn't that much weight. But I... I I lift that up, I walk back in the squat rack, and I go down, and I start to come back, and there ain't no way. And that, that bar comes flipping off my shoulders, bar comes crashing down, squat racks were new in that day, so they are lo- it's loud. It's loud as an understatement. It's early in the morning. All eyes turn to me. Good morning. I failed. There you go. Good morning. Nice to see you. The weight was too great for me to lift. The weight was too great for me to lift. While the weight of the law and its demands for perfection was too heavy for us to bear, too heavy for us to lift in our own strength, God sent His Son. And Jesus revealed that He was the very Son of God through His ability to be born under the law and yet nail it flawlessly, lift it to perfection. By being born under the law, our Savior consented to fulfill its demands so that we could be released from the death sentence against those who do not obey it perfectly. Because Romans tells us the wages of sin is death, and sin is missing the mark. And so when we look at the the law, we've missed the mark. And so we need Jesus, who didn't miss the mark, and laid down his life for us. By keeping the commands, our Savior did what we never could do. And his record of perfect law-keeping is now ours by faith alone in him. He was born under the law so that we might be redeemed or set free from the law. This is good news. This is good news for us. Now, we haven't been set free to serve ourselves. Instead, we've been set free to love him, love others. This is what Galatians 5 tells us. The grace of God calls us to obedience and faithfulness. The grace of God is not licensed to continue in sin, but it actually gives us the power to turn from sin. The believer in Christ embraces Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, as the one who is born under its weight, was able to lift it perfectly in order to save those who could not. But the Pharisee is one who rejects Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. They reject his authority. They reject him as Savior. And so instead of urgently inviting others to hear and respond to the good news of Jesus, they're leading people away. But brothers and sisters, those of us who who know the Lord, may we urgently invite others to enter the kingdom knowing that they are invited, all are invited to repent and believe the good news. May we be urgent in announcing how good the good news is that when we fell short, Jesus did not 
And He is a sufficient Savior. Today is the day of salvation and all are invited. There's a kingdom value of urgently inviting in that we need to be about. And then Jesus gives another rebuke to the Pharisees in verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now this seems out of left field, but it actually isn't. This is an example of where the Pharisees were scoffing at Jesus. And Jesus is saying, righteous living still matters. The law is called to to live in a way that reflects and glorifies our God in this world still matters. The grace of God still calls us to faithful living. Just like we are called to faithfulness in our money, here we're being called to faithfulness in our relationships, including marriage. Now, this one verse is not the whole of Scripture's teaching on divorce and remarriage. He's given a principle here that helps form the Scripture's teaching on on marriage. But in our day, divorce and remarriage has led to a lot of wounds and hurt. Some of you have experienced this in childhood, your adult life, maybe both. So bear with me as we look at what Jesus is saying here. In that day, just like in our day, marriage was often cheapened. The significance of vows were lessened. For instance, some rabbis were teaching that if a wife burnt the food, a divorce could take place. That's terrible, and that's an understatement. Jesus here is dealing with the heart because God is after the heart and looks at the heart, and he's seeking to transform the heart. But Jesus is saying one example of a hard heart is when a man seeks to divorce his his wife with the intent to remarry another woman. It's self-serving. It's what the Pharisees were often doing for earthly reasons such as burnt food or other rabbis taught if you met someone prettier, you could go there. So an act of remarriage then is an unfaithful act to the vows that you committed to the first time around. And yet Jesus himself in Matthew 5 Later, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 gave examples of biblically acceptable reasons for divorce, where divorce was permitted, not mandated, not required, not an automatic decision. Simply, here are permitted reasons for divorce, those being adultery and abandonment. Several years ago, we worked on uh, to articulate our biblical convictions on the subjects of, of marriage and divorce and remarriage. You can find this statement on our website, but I want to share with you a verbatim because I think it's fitting as we look at this passage here in Luke. Marriage is a sacred institution ordained by God as a permanent and intimate relationship between one man and one woman. It is intended to endure until it is broken by the death of one of the partners. We believe the scriptures do not give liberty for a believer to marry a non-believer We believe divorce is contrary to God's original intention and design for marriage. As a result, divorce is nowhere encouraged or required in the scriptures. Because reconciliation and forgiveness is central to the gospel message, it should be pursued with humility and zeal as opposed to divorce. Due to the hardness of the human heart, reconciliation may not always be possible. There are two cases in scripture where divorce, though not encouraged as a loophole, is permitted when one of the partners in marriage has committed adultery or when a non-believing partner chooses to desert a believer even though the believing partner has been seeking to reflect the spirit of Christ in their relationship. 
A person who obtained a divorce under those provisions may enter another marriage relationship as the Lord leads. In light of the potential of gospel reconciliation, those obtaining a divorce for any other reason than those two situations in Scripture are encouraged to avoid remarriage until the death or remarriage of their first spouse. In these difficult situations that are often not black and white, anyone seeking remarriage is encouraged to seek godly counsel from the elder team, pastoral staff on how to proceed in a God-honoring way. For instance, those who have sought a divorce with the clear intent to remarry another would be seen as contrary to God's word, which is what uh, Jesus is dealing with here. The last sentence, the goal of any actions in these sensitive matters should be to glorify God in both the process and the outcome of dealing with broken relationships in a fallen world. Now, this scripture doesn't specifically address, not that that scripture, but the scripture here in Luke 16 doesn't specifically address the issue of destructive abuse here, which I believe is a permitted reason for divorce. The Lord is not commanding you to remain in a marriage where your physical safety is at risk or you're experiencing harm and hurt, for example. Some of you have experienced that in your past. Some of you are experiencing that in your present day. It's stirred up even more over the last 18 months. If this is your present day reality, please reach out to the authorities. Please. Healing and freedom never happens in isolation. It always happens in the light, in community, with people who love you. In this passage, Jesus is also not saying that if, if you have marital brokenness in your past, that the way to fix it is to break your current covenant and go back and try to pursue reconciliation with your first spouse. He's calling us to faithfulness today in the context that we find ourselves in. This is not condemnation. This is a call to faithfulness in the context that we are in. Faithfulness reveals a tenderness in our hearts. He's calling out a hardness in the Pharisee's heart that's playing out in the example of how they're handling divorce. As God's people, we are called to pursue faithfulness because it is a reflection of who our God is. This past week, I, I walked through the, the second time in my pastoral tenure where I have now formally remarried a husband and wife who had walked through separation, divorce, reconciliation, and sought to be remarried to one another again. Beautiful. Beautiful. God glorifying. I have also walked through, I have one specific couple in mind. They'll know who I'm talking about. Nobody else probably will, which is kind of the point of the goal. Um, I have done a marriage ceremony at Eureka Lake. Uh, it was their second marriage. First marriage ended even though spouses sought to um, reconcile that relationship. It didn't happen. They pursued it with zeal and humility like, like we talked about. It didn't happen. Broken world, fallen world still. The relationship ended. And I was able to join with them with close family and to officiate a second marriage and to see a, a husband and wife commit to one another in a Christ-centered, God-glorifying marriage. And there's fruit from that marriage right now. There's fruit happening in that household, in the generations that follow, including in how they lead and serve around here. In the end, brothers and sisters, we are gospel people. 
for gospel people. And the gospel is good news for us in our marriages. It reminds us that even in the darkest, hardest moments, the Lord can break through. Even what appears to be dead can come back to life. Even in the ashes, the Lord can make beauty. Even in the brokenness of a first marriage that ended because of things like adultery or abandonment or abuse, the Lord can restore and bring about a second marriage that is centered on the Lord, glorifying to Him. Even in the desert, the Lord can make water run again. Even in the sin, there's a sacrifice sufficient to cover all our sin. Even in the wandering, there's a good shepherd calling us home. Even in the wounds that that occur in this fallen world, our comforter and healer is here to bandage and counsel us. Even if there's brokenness in previous generations, our generation can break that cycle and walk in a new way, setting our minds and hearts on things above living with kingdom values that are shaping our everyday way of life, including our relationships. We are gospel people. We are Easter people. We are living hope people. This is what we live out in the mud and in the thickness of relationships as well as money and all these other subjects that the Lord is dealing with here because all of that reveals a tenderness in our hearts a tenderness toward his authority, and his his authority is good and loving and for our joy. If the worship team could come back up. This is good news for us today. The Lord knows our hearts, and while that may seem unsettling, knowing what we know about our own hearts, he's still pursuing us, he's still drawing us in, he's still rejoicing in our repentance. He loves you, dear ones, and he is for you. So may you reject that Pharisee attitude to scoff at this Pharisee hard heart. May we reject that instead, pursue humility and tenderness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we're thankful for your living and active word. We're thankful for your goodness and grace in our lives. We're thankful that that the gospel is not just how we are saved, but how we are grown up in you. We thank you that the good news of Jesus is good news for us in daily life. I pray that you would enable us to pursue faithfulness and to pursue you, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength as a way of life. Be glorified by our actions. Be glorified by, by the tenderness and the humility that we pursue in our own hearts and minds toward you. I pray for us collectively, for the households represented here, for the household of faith here at Crosspoint, that we would be known as, we would be characterized by having hearts that, that don't scoff at you, but welcome you, that surrender to you, that receive you with gladness and joy. We pray this in your name. Amen.